Thanks for listening to one of our Sunday messages at Crossroads Bible Church. We gather on Sunday mornings at 9.15 and 10.45 a.m. To find out more about our church or to connect with any of our ministries, visit our website at crossroadsbible.org. We hope you enjoy the message and pray it encourages you as you follow Jesus. Amen. Grab a seat. How are we doing this morning? Good, man. We are starting a new series today. We just got done with one on just the nature of change. And it started three weeks ago when Nick got up here and and talked about our need for change. Staying where you're at is not God's design for you. And then I got up here and talked about how God, God's big picture of good is beautiful, what he calls us into. And then last week, Steve Hickson was here and he talked about the nature of change over time. And he said, really, it's, it's, it's a marathon, not a sprint. I love the question he asked. He said, if you want to know what change looks like or if you want to change, it's by putting yourselves in places where you have to ask for God's help. And I love that. This morning walking in, you might have walked in the doors and said, they took my chair away. Holy Spirit, help me. All right? And that is okay. You're welcome. We are growing you and it's good, man. Uh, We're going to continue the conversation. I know some people are freaking out. We're going to continue the conversation on change. This is what we're going to talk about. Every January, we, we talk about a spiritual discipline. And we do that because, like Steve talked about, our development as Christians, our ability to look more like Jesus and show others the picture of his redemption every day through our actions is one that takes a long time. You're never going to get to the end of it just like Paul did, and you're never going to be perfect until Jesus comes back. And so every day we wake up and we press in to growth. I love what uh, C.S. Lewis said. He said, each day we're becoming a creature of splendid glory or one of unthinkable horror. And I know that's true because I have a toddler. Um, seriously, every morning we wake up, and when the kid wakes up, she starts yelling. She's an angry waker-upper. Uh, and, and we lean over and we say, the kid's awake. And we're kind of excited, but kind of terrified because we don't know until we walk in what bundle of joy we're unwrapping that day, you know? And and really what I love about the quote from C.S. Lewis is it kind of speaks to the idea that every day we make decisions to follow Jesus. That it's not just a one and done. Salvation is, justification is, what Jesus did for you is, but we grow. and, And that takes effort. And so when we talk about spiritual disciplines, what we're talking about are things that help us look more like Jesus. Because I think here's the truth of the matter. As a whole, we don't choose things that are necessarily healthy or we don't choose things that are necessarily hard. We shy away from those things. We shy away from the healthy and hard into the easy and usually bad for us. I know that because I buy lunch every week at places I would admit to you right now and it's way easier to fall out of shape than to get into it. And so without spiritual disciplines, what that does is spiritual disciplines actually allow us, they form us, they shape us, they help us to choose the healthy and the hard because it's better. Because it's better for us in the long run. And so how we define spiritual disciplines at crossroads, we used it last year when we talked about prayer, it's common language for us. We say spiritual disciplines are the way we participate in the work that only God can accomplish, the work of changing our hearts. So what that means is, it's us coming to the table, putting us in a position that says, God, help God, show up God, grow me. We press in and God presses in more. It's this beautiful co-laboring with the Holy Spirit. And so one of the spiritual disciplines we talked about last year was prayer. And another one, discipline that we work at to be happy and healthy and do the hard work of sanctification or looking more like Jesus, is what we're going to talk about today. And that's the discipline of rest. 
This one, arrest, is known in the Bible. It's a theme. It's called Sabbath. That's the name of the series because we're really creative with titles at Crossroads. And so we are going to talk about what Sabbath is and, and what it means and why it's good. Because I think that we don't talk about it much in our culture anymore. I think we don't talk about this discipline as much as others. And I think it's a shame because I think we very, very much need it. The word Sabbath in the Hebrew really just means ceasing or stopping. And I think as Americans, specifically our country, as an individualistic kind of work forward value comes from production kind of people, we need to talk about what it looks like to rest. Because I don't think we intrinsically do it well. Every year, the World Labor Organization comes out with an average of how like, countries work, how many hours they work. And just to put this in perspective and why I don't think we're good at this, America is usually towards the top end of most worked hours per week of any developed nation. So for example, we work more than a couple other developed nations. We, have a, we work 137 more hours per year than Japan. We work 260 hours more per year than the British. We work almost 500 hours more per year than the French. Shocking, right? (laughs) We like to work. We value work. There's 134 countries that have laws against setting a maximum length of the work week. We do not. Just this year alone, 28% of Americans will max out their vacation, which means 72% won't. They'll let days slide by. One study put together said that in total last year, Americans gave up 212 million days off, according to Project Time Off. That accounts to 62.2 billion in lost benefits total. We left on the table because we value work. But it's not just work, right? It's not just that we like to go to the nine to five, punch in and out and make money. We do love that. I think we like the idea of being busy because we think busyness is value. We like the idea of having stuff to do and stuff to go to. When you think about it, as our culture moves farther and farther away from the morality we see in scripture, still to this day, we don't really brag about breaking. Let's just take the Ten Commandments, for example, because the Sabbath is one of them. We don't brag about breaking the Ten Commandments for the most part. Nobody says, man, you know I did really well today? I lied awesome today. You might think that inside. We don't speak that outside, right? Nobody's going to say, you know what, I adulted so hard today, everybody joined. That's not how we live this world. You know what, when we do break often and brag about it, Sabbath, we oftentimes say, hey, how's your day going? It's really busy, and we take that as a source of pride or value. How's your life? I'm super busy, I don't have time to stop or to rest or to fill in the blank. Sabbath is one of the only of the Ten Commandments I think we take pride in bragging about breaking, because I think we have a problem with stopping, with ceasing, with Sabbathing. See, the idea... That essentially, as a whole, we're not good at it. So I kind of want to start by just simply asking the question, where's that got us as a people? Where's that got us as a country? I think you see some real ramifications from not resting. I, I can quote you stats and I have in the past, but as far as developed nations go, we are one of the leaders in anxiety and in depression. About 10% uh, of our population is on anti-anxiety medications. There's a suicide once every 12 seconds in our country. And that stat has risen dramatically over the last 15 years. Where's it gotten us? The not resting, the always going, the always being busy. I think there's a correlation to always being busy and the rise in anxiety and unhealthiness that we see. 
We've got to ask the question, really what it comes down to is do we fundamentally value rest? And I think the answer is fundamentally no. We don't value rest. We don't value stopping. And so what I want to do in this three-week series is talk about the value of rest, talk about what it looks like, and talk about what it points towards. There's one um, quote I love by Corrie ten Boom. She said, the devil can't make us bad, but he'll make us busy, you know? Just the idea that we keep going and keep going and keep going. And here's what we're going to talk about today. I don't know if that's God's design for us. I don't know if that's how he made us to flourish and function. I think he made us to value rest. And just to be really transparent with you guys, this one is for me there are sometimes you get up here and you give sermons that you're like, yeah, this is for the people out there. I'm pretty good, right? And there are sometimes when you get up there and you say, I don't do this well at all. True story. I literally had conversations with my wife about how many hours a day I could work on my honeymoon, right? And she still said, I do, you know? I'm not good at this. I'm an Enneagram 3 and I'm a finders achiever and I'm a ENTJ. Both Myers and Briggs said stop. And I didn't, you know, this is kind of how I run my life. I keep going. This for me has been an interesting study just to see what God values and ask the simple question, do I value the same thing? Why or why not? And so today we're going to have a conversation on the nature of rest of Sabbath. But before we do that, we have two goals every Sunday morning at Crossroads. And the first one is we're going to open the scripture and we want to know God. And the way that we know God is we study what he said about himself and we study the scripture and we dive deep and we take a long time and we say, this is who God is. But true knowledge, full knowledge doesn't just stop at knowing the answers. It actually always transcends into influence. And so if you really know something, it changes you. And so our first goal is to know God only so that his influence might build and grow in our lives and our families and our communities. And so we want to know God and experience his influence this morning. And because of that, I, I don't think you're here by accident. I think God put you here for a reason. And when we open the word of God, we learn from God. I think this morning God's going to do something. I think this morning God's going to shape your spirit, wherever it might be, more like, more into the spirit of Jesus. And to do that means that we're active listeners, we're engaged, we're asking questions about what God is trying to teach me as we open the text. To do that means we're expecting God to do something. And so we're going to start by just praying. And I'm going to ask that you take a couple seconds and just to yourself, say a prayer when you're prompted that the Holy Spirit might just do something in your lives today, because I believe you will. And then two, I'm going to ask that you pray for me, because guys, I'm really not good at resting. So I'm going to talk to you about things that I don't do yet in my life, but I'm working on it, okay? So let's pray together. God, I'm so just glad that we can all gather together and, and have conversations about how we can better look like Jesus, about how we can implement different activities in our life to co-labor with the Holy Spirit so that people might see the redemptive value or see that God's not done with our world yet and there is hope. So I pray this morning as we open your scripture and talk about rest, um, that you teach us something, that you shape us into the image of your son. So if you're comfortable, take a couple seconds and just say a prayer that the Holy Spirit might do something in your spirit this morning. And ask that you pray for me, that I might do a good job talking about the, the theme of Sabbath that we see in Scripture that God might work in and through me to accomplish his good this morning.
Pray these things in the name of Jesus and all God's people said, amen. We're in it together. We are going to be in three primary passages this morning. We're going to be in Genesis 2, 1, really at the end of 2. We're going to be in Exodus 20 and Deuteronomy 5, and we'll have some stuff on the screen. Today isn't so much a let's camp down on one scripture and walk through it. It's let's get an idea of what God says, a systematic, if you will, idea of what God says about rest when he created it and implemented it. So what's the big picture idea behind rest? And and to do that, let's start at the start. So the first time we see the idea of rest, the concept of rest in all the scripture is in the creation narrative. You probably know it well, but if you don't, God created all these things, everything you see, and he said, it is good, it is very good. And then he got to the end of the creation narrative in Genesis 1 that spills into Genesis 2, and it goes like this in the first verse of Genesis 2. He says, The heavens and the earth were completed with everything that was in them. By the seventh day, God finished the work that had been, that he'd been doing, and he ceased on the seventh day all the work that he'd been doing. That word cease there is our word Sabbath. Verse three, God blessed the seventh day and made it holy because on it, he ceased all work that he'd been doing in creation. So the first time we see this idea of Sabbath is really coming from an action of God. And we see two descriptors there when we talk about it in Genesis 2-3. One, God blessed it, and two, God made it holy. God blessed it, and God made it holy. And as we go through our series, it's kind of going to form our outline for how we're going to talk about Sabbath. Today is about blessing. Today we're going to ask the question, what does it mean that it's blessed? Why is it blessed? Why is it a blessing for us? Next week, we're going to talk about the holiness of Sabbath. Holy means set apart. So what does it look like to actually set apart Sabbath? It's, this week is much more high level in terms of big picture. And next week is much more boots on the ground. Charlie, tell me some components of Sabbath if I don't know where I'm beginning. What does it look like to Sabbath? And in the third week, we're going to talk about how Sabbath, this institution that God created and implemented, really points towards something else. It's a shadow of something to come that gives us hope. And so today we're going to start with the idea that he said when he first created Sabbath that I'm going to bless the seventh day and make it holy. And so when God talks about blessing the seventh day, he really talks about his design for the people that he created in days one through six. And we see that God is really serious about Sabbath. Not just kind of serious, but really serious. And we know it because it's one of the Ten Commandments. It's not just one of the Ten Commandments. Actually, it is in the middle. It's actually the longest of all the commandments. It's one that we brush by, but seemingly has more weight. And to put it a step farther, it's the sign of the covenant God made with Moses. If you don't know what I'm talking about, really the story of the Old Testament is that God picked a people, saved a people. And he picked a people from Abraham. They went into bondage in Egypt. And 400 years later, he miraculously delivered them. Those same people are waiting on the base of a mountain to have a connection with God. And he said, I'm going I'm to be your God and, and you're going to be my people. I'm going to make this bond with you right here and right now. And he said, I'm going to give you ways to live. And he gave them 613 laws that regulated life from how to treat one another to how to treat land and cattle to how to do ceremonial things like pray and sacrifice. 613 laws. The Ten Commandments are 10 of those laws. Every covenant God made with people had a sign, a reckoning back to Noah and the flood. The sign is the rainbow. That's right, you know. Abraham, the sign was circumcision. New covenant people, yay. There's a lot of places where God covenants with people and then gives them a sign to remember it by. It's the weight of the covenant. You know what the sign was for all the laws that he gave the people of Moses? Sabbath. 
He said, my sign for the covenant with all the people are the Sabbath. It wasn't just supposed to be another law. It was the one that centered all the laws. He gave it weight. He said, out of all of them, this one is my sign to you for how I'm saying to do life so that you might grow and flourish. And so the first time we see him proclaim to his people the Ten Commandments, which is a part of the other 600 laws that were written down. The first time we see that is in Exodus 20. And he talks to Moses, and this is what he says. Remember the Sabbath day. To set it apart as holy. For six days you may labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is the Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shouldn't do any work. You, your son, your daughter, your male servant, your female servant, your cattle, or the resident foreigner who is in your gates. So he says, remember the Sabbath. This is who it applies to. And then in verse 11, he says, here's the why. He said, remember the Sabbath for in six days, the Lord made the heavens and the earth and the sea and all that's in them. And he rested on the seventh day. Therefore, the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and set it apart as holy. So the first reason we get the why behind the what simply put is you should rest on the seventh day. You know why? God did. God rested on the seventh day. And just so we can get something out of the way up front, God didn't rest for reasons that we rest not all the way. When God rested, it wasn't that this really took a lot out of him and he needed a nap, right? It says in Isaiah pretty clearly that God, the creator of everything, he does not grow faint or grow weary. It says that God doesn't get tired. So my question is, then why did God rest? And what you see there in the Hebrew is one of the reasons why what the Old Testament was written in. You begin to see that part of that word means not just that I rested because I was tired, but I rested because I marveled with delight at what I'd done. You guys live in subdivisions with lawns of the month? Yeah, if you are people that have won that, we are not going to be friends, but I love you in Christ. Um, my neighborhood has one, and, and the neighbor's directly across the street from me. Their lawn is immaculate all the time. Mine is just a bunch of weeds that are dying. And, and every Saturday, I'm inside sometimes, like with the kid, and I'll look out there and see them working on their lawn every Saturday. And I think to myself, I should really do that. But Netflix still plays. And, and every Saturday they get done and, and I can see them like sitting on their front porch or just sitting in their lawn. And they're just delighted at how their lawn looks. They take pride in it. And I, I get it. I sit on my front porch in my porch swing and I take delight in how their lawn looks. <laughs> <It's>, <laughs> I just, I raise my eye, love you. Look at that one. That's what I see. You know, it's so good. The, 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 the wording here lends us to, to, to understand that when God says I rested, what he's doing isn't like I need a break. What he's doing is simply saying, look at what I did and how good it is. I'm marveling with delight at my creation. So here's the deal. I think the first thing we see is if we're too busy to rest, if we're too busy to stop, if we're too busy to Sabbath. And you could say to me, Charlie, but you don't understand. I got three kids. I don't understand. But this principle is bigger than that. Charlie, my job and my work and my personal life and my fill in the blank. I think the trump card for all of that is God said it was good for him. And if you don't believe that what's good for God is good for you, if you want to look more like God, that's not good. The idea there that if you're saying that this is good for God, but I don't need it, you're saying you're bigger, better than God. And I don't think that's the case. So when we talk about Sabbath, the first thing I see quite simply is that God said it's good for him. And when he says, remember the Sabbath, he said, because it's good for me, do it too. And that's just a relationship of him to me, me acknowledging, maybe even if I don't understand it, he knows something I don't. Maybe even if I don't understand it, he's prescribed something I need. That's just humility. 
And so the first thing he says is, remember the Sabbath, here's why. Because I rested and it was good. And sometimes, sometimes we rest because we're tired and we need it. And we're going to get into that. But sometimes if we don't take time to stop and rest, then we can't do what God did, which is delight in what he's doing in the world around us. If we don't ever stop and look. If we never stop and take pleasure and look at what God is doing, because so often it's easy to miss. It's so easy to believe that he's not. And when we stop and rest and ask the Holy Spirit to show us, we see that God's at work all around us and we delight in the God that we serve and follow. If you don't stop to rest, you miss the delight of God. And so he says, rest, because I rested, I rested on the seventh day, therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and set it apart. Love what John Ortberg says. He says, busyness isn't just a disordered schedule. It's a disordered heart. So he makes this idea of resting. And he said, he rested on the seventh day. So seemingly there's a rhythm in Sabbath. There's a recurringness of Sabbath every seventh day. That's what he commands them to do in Exodus 2 or Exodus 20 when he's talking about the Ten Commandments. He said, every seventh day you're going to Sabbath, you're going to rest. And what that shows us really is that Sabbath is more than just a command. It's a rhythm, right? It's a rhythm that we fall into because when we talk about Sabbath, the fundamental broke down part of the conversation is Sabbath is just your relationship to organizing your time. How do you organize your time? Because how you organize your time shows value. Sabbath is a rhythm that's asking you to organize your time in a way that shows value to God. And he says, every seventh day you're going to stop and, and understand that Sabbath is our perspective around time. And, and there's a couple different ways to look at time. There's an objective way that we measure time. There's a subjective way that we measure time. So objectively, things that measure time are things that measure time passing that you can see. So for example, like a year is an objective way to measure time. We know exactly when a year comes and goes because you go around the sun one time. It's objectively measurable, right? A day is an objectively measurable standard of time. It's a rhythm built in that you can't deny or ignore because a day comes and goes, night comes and goes, sun up, sun down. There are objective measurements of time that you can't deny or woven into how this world works, right? But then there are other ones. There are the more subjective ones that seemingly are present even though they don't measure anything tangible. So for example, a month is a good example of this. So we know that a year around the sun is 365 days, but why do we have 12 months? We could have one 365-day month. It could go on forever, you know? A month is a good example of a, of a subjective time measurement, a rhythm that we have that seems to be around, that seems to be embedded into, but I can't point to like it got dark and light again. A day is a great example of this. A day is a great example of a seemingly subjective measurement of time that I think God built into the fabric, the rhythm of creation. I mean, but when I say a day, I mean six days or seven days in a week. So why is a week seven days? God said, I'm going to create the world, and he created this pattern where he rested every seventh day, but every day kind of looks like the day before, especially if you get older and older and older, and they seem to come and go and come and go and come and go. I think part of it is us recognizing the rhythms God built into the world. There's an author named Wayne Mueller, and he wrote a really fabulous book on Sabbath. He's got this quote that I love. It's long. I'm going to read the whole thing. He says, In the restless busyness of modern life, we've lost the rhythm between work and rest. All life requires a rhythm of rest. There's a rhythm in our waking activity and the body's need for sleep. There's a rhythm in the way day dissolves into night and night into morning. 
There's a rhythm as the active growth of spring and summer is quieted by the, necessi- by the necessary dormancy of fall and winter. There's a tidal rhythm, a deep, eternal conversation between the land and the great sea. In our bodies, the heart perceptibly rests after each life-giving beat. The lungs rest between each exhale and the inhale. We have lost his essential rhythm. Talking about the fact that God created this world with an ebb and a flow, with a discipline and a rhythm. And living into Sabbath rest is part of the rhythm that he created. The problem is we live in a culture that kicks back against those rhythms because we seemingly don't need them anymore, you know? So, for example, we see it with food sometimes. I think that we live in a beautiful age where you can eat what you want when you want to eat it regardless of what season it is. I buy tomatoes in winter and that should not happen, everybody. That's why the paleo diet's really big. It's about eating what's in season, not prepackaged or canned or preserved when it's available. And it's a healthier way to go about life. But because we have refrigeration and, and because we have preservatives, we don't need to eat in the rhythm of life that we were supposed to eat in in the first place or liked eating in. I'm a huge fan of preservatives, right? Because they help me eat what I want to eat when I want to eat it. I think we see it with days and nights. Now that the light bulb was invented, we seemingly can push back the rhythm of each passing day. My grandparents were farmers and You couldn't deny that when the sun was up, you worked, and when the sun was down, you didn't anymore. But we live in places where you turn on lights, and you can simply ignore the passing of day and night. I don't know if you guys have ever been inside a casino. I'm guessing the answer is no, because it's Sunday and you're here. But um, if I ask you on Monday, not here, you might look at me differently. If you've ever been in a casino, you can be in there for 12, 15, 19 hours and not realize what part of day it is, what time of day it is, whether the sun is up or down or in between, because we live in a world that pushes back and kicks against natural rhythms. Every year, I used to take a group of people to Mexico and build houses, and it's really interesting to watch their rhythms get disrupted as like their batteries died by the time they got to Amarillo and they couldn't turn it back on, and so they're forced to be with the people in vans with them, right? It's this natural rhythm that I can't escape anymore because I have to be here, and when the sun's up, I'm up, and when the sun's down, I'm down. It's beautiful. God created a world with natural rhythms and in our world, and some of it's good and some of it's not good, kicks against some of those things. So the question we have to ask is what happens when we kick against the natural rhythms, the objective and the subjective rhythms that we see in the world? So let's talk about the objective just for a second. Like the day-night one is a good one. We live in a world where Like I said before, we value work. The more we work, the more valuable we are. We live in a country that says, yes, I work X amount of hours. We work more than the French and more than the British and more than the Japanese. Go America, right? And that's not all bad, but I will say that there are study after study after study now, non-Jesus-y studies. There are studies that show that after a certain point, your productivity just falls right off. There's a study at Harvard a couple years ago with an economics professor, and he said that productivity per hour declines sharply when a person works more than 50 hours a week. After 55 hours, productivity drops so much that putting in any more hours would be pointless. And those who work up to 70 hours a week are only getting the same amount of work done as those who put in 55. He quote, he said, busyness is not a means to accomplishment, but an obstacle to it. So when we ignore the rhythms, whether you believe in God's rhythm or not, it seemingly says that, that it points back to the need for the rhythm in the first place. You can try to work 90 hours a week, but all the data tells us that doesn't do any good because maybe God designed the world to work in a certain way. There's an example I read this week about, um, from a couple hundred years ago about people traveling the Oregon Trail. 
And there's a story I read, and they said that there were these two groups that left. It started as one, and they left a little later in the year. And I guess part of it was you wanted to leave at a certain time to where you didn't freeze, but you also didn't, like, you know, melt. Um, if you've ever played the Oregon Trail game, you know what I'm talking about. Be the banker, you know, all that good stuff. And they would leave, and they were making bad time, and they left late. So it started getting cold, and they were concerned they weren't going to make it. And so half the group rose up and said, you know what, we got to go. We have to step on the gas pedal to get there in time so that we don't die. So we're just going to stop ignoring Sabbath and we're going to travel on all the days, right? And then Mary died of dysentery. Kidding. Um, But we're going to travel on, if you play the game, you're following with me. If we're going to travel all the days to get there quicker. And another group said we're not. We're still going to value Sabbath. Guess, Guess which group got there first? The group that took a day and rested. All these numbers show us, and from now in Harvard to back then in the Oregon Trail, it shows us this rhythm that hasn't changed, that when you rest, you're more efficient. When you rest, you're more productive. When you rest, you're better suited to flourish in the world that God designed. What we see is that there's a rhythm to God and how he designed the world to work. Let's talk about the week thing, because there's no reason. There's no reason that a week is seven days. But you know what? Every every person, every culture in the history of the world is at a seven-day week. (laughs) Like it's always been the case right now. It is always the case. And you've got to ask the question, why? And I think it's because God designed the world to work in a certain way. And there's two examples I have in the last few hundred years where people tried to change that. One, in the late 18th century in 1795-6-ish, French Revolution was going on and they said, we need to be more efficient. So we're going to change time. They said, we're going to make the week not seven days, but 10 days we're going to make 10 hours in the day and 100 minutes in an hour. They said we're drastically going to change how we schedule our week to get more production out of our people. You know what happened? About four years in, they realized suicides went through the roof and mental instability was all the way up there too. So four years in, they said, let's go back to the way it was. In 1929, the USSR said we need to be more productive too. And they said we're going to change the calendar to have 72 weeks of five days each, but... Each worker was given one of those days as a rest day, which they didn't work. The problem was that the system was designed to make for a continuous work week at any given moment. 24 hours a day, every day, 80% of the workforce was working compared with capitalist systems that gave universal weekends. The system proved very frustrating. Most people didn't have the same rest days as their spouses or friends or family, and machines broke down. For the same reason, New York City subways have always broken down. When a system works 24 hours a day, every day, there's no real time to repair, relax, and maintain them. And in 1931, they went back to a seven-day work week. Because for seeming system, for reasons, they tried to change it, and it failed. Because I think God created the world with a design. Objective and subjective ways that we measure time. And he said, part of how you're going to flourish in the world is to take a rest every seven days because this is my design and it's good and it's a blessing. And we know that to be true. We know to be true that things that don't take a break, break, (laughs) you know? We know that it's true that if you keep going at reckless speeds, at reckless paces, that eventually either you will take a break or it will break you and you will force to take a break. One of my favorite parts of the whole dad thing so far that nobody can explain to me is the whole, like, having a kid thing. Let me finish. The whole, like, having a kid thing in the hospital, all right? Because you show up there, and you're there for three-ish days, and again, day, night, doesn't matter, right? Kids are crying, lights are on, everything kind of melds together. And what I love about that moment is, um, at the end of it, they take you, 
and they take your wife and they take your kid and they wheel you down to your car and they will not let you in a hospital walk with your kid outside of a wheelchair. They won't let you do it. Like even in the hallway, they make you and then they, they watch you strap your kid into the car seat very carefully and they watch you put it in the car. Some hospitals make you prove to them you know what you're doing and do it in the room beforehand. And then they put you in the car and they say, hey, have a safe trip home. The problem is most studies now show us that drowsy driving is almost as bad as drunken driving if you stay up for a long time. If you've been up 18 hours and you drove, the numbers say that it's kind of like you, you blew a 0.05. If you stay up 24 hours, they say your body responds in the same way as if you blew a 0.10, which is over the legal limit. You haven't slept in three days and they say, hey, have a fun trip home. Welcome to the new world and your family. You know what I'm talking about? Because when things don't take a break, they break. Because God designed this world to have a rhythm of rest. One philosopher said, if you go against the grain of the universe, you get splinters. I think it's true. I think it's us acknowledging that God designed the world to work in a certain way. I think we acknowledge it through days, weeks, and months. I think we acknowledge it through the fact that when we've tried to break against it, it breaks us. So why do we rest? Why do we have a Sabbath? Because that's how we were made. You can deny it if you want to, but the people that have in the past have been broken by it. I read an article this week about some Seventh-day Adventists, if you don't know who they are. They're people that follow Jesus a little differently than us. They, they take a strict observance of the Sabbath. Like, they don't do anything on the Sabbath. The first time I came into contact with them was I was in, playing basketball in high school. And my junior year, our team made it to, I think it was the quarterfinals or the semi, yeah, quarterfinals of the state tournament. And we played the Seventh-day Adventist team. And um, they beat us. But the next game was scheduled on the Sabbath. And so they actually had to cancel, and we got to go to the semifinals. Love these people, right? They're fantastic. We got beat by 40. We didn't belong to be there, but that's okay, man. They take it really seriously. I guarantee those kids said, we can just play this one time. They said, no. It goes against fundamentally what we value about how God values our rhythms of rest. So there's a study that came out. There's a group in Loma Linda, California, and it's Seventh-day Adventists. And the study came out and said there's something different about these people. It's that town with the Seventh-day Adventist is one of five blue zones in the world, small pockets around the world where people tend to live well into their 90s and even their hundreds. It says this, t- this list includes some towns in Costa Rica, Greece, Italy, and Bhutan. In this one town of Seventh-day Adventists, early death rates among the Adventists were 33% lower and cancer rates were 30% lower. On average, they live 11 years longer than the average American that didn't observe Sabbath. And there's a lot of reasons for that. They do a lot of dietary stuff, but I think part of it has to be too that they observe God's design and rhythm for how we're supposed to live in the first place. So the question I'm asking is, do we understand, do we value rest like God values rest? Do we see rest as a luxury or a necessity? Do we see rest as something we choose to do if we have time or something God designed us to do all the time, once a week? Here's what I love about the idea of rest is that it mirrors God's character when he said he rested. But it's not just for you, it's for all the people and places that you know. That's why the commandment says in the middle of it there, you're gonna rest, then your cattle's gonna rest, your daughter, your servants, your slaves, everything's gonna, even the foreigners that are among you that don't know me or practice my law, they're all gonna rest. And so what you see about biblical rest, especially in the Old Testament, when God's laying out his heart for his people through the laws, what you see is God saying, it's not just about you, it's about everything I created. Once every seven years, he goes on to say in Leviticus, you're not going to plant anything in the ground because it needs a rest. 
Once every 49 years, the land's going to rest completely. You're going to forgive all debts. You're going to let all servants and slaves go free, and you're going to celebrate. This idea of rest wasn't just something he prescribed to people. It was something he prescribed to his entire creation, all of it. It's woven into the fabric of how he created in the first place. And we see it. We see that when we go against it, we break. Because we go against how God designed us to work. So there's two places where God gives his commandment. The first one, the first time we see the Ten Commandments is Exodus 20. The second time we see the Ten Commandments is actually Deuteronomy 5. Just to track the biblical story, Exodus 20 was when they first got the law and then they wandered in the wilderness for 40 years. And literally what happened in that time was a whole generation passed that couldn't go into the promised land because they didn't trust God. And he rose up a whole new generation of people. And so before they're going to go in the promised land, Moses sits them all down again in Deuteronomy and said, I'm going to recite the laws again to you so that you know. And that's what Deuteronomy is. It's a second recitation of the laws to the people of God, to the Israelite people. And so we see the Ten Commandments again, and in Exodus we see why we should rest because it's a rhythm of God, and in Deuteronomy we see why we don't rest because we don't like it. So in Deuteronomy 5, verse 12, it starts like this, the second time we see this commandment. Observe the Sabbath day by keeping it holy as the Lord your God has commanded you. Same language. Six days you won't, you'll labor and do your work, but on the seventh day, a Sabbath day um, will be to the Lord your God. And on it, you shouldn't do any work. And then in verse 15, he gets down to the why in this one. The first one is remember the Sabbath because it's a rhythm that God created that he said it was good. <coughs> the second one, he said, remember the Sabbath, verse 15, because you were slaves in Egypt. And that your God has brought you out of there with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm. Therefore, the Lord your God has commanded you to observe a Sabbath day. It's a very different reason than the first one. The first one, the command is to remember the Sabbath because God built it into how he created. The second one is remember the Sabbath because you were slaves and now you're not anymore. You gotta understand, these people came out of 400 years of slavery. They didn't get a day off. Egypt wasn't very kind to them. They came out of 400 years of slavery where they worked every day. They came out of 400, days, 400 years of slavery where, where literally they were seen as only valuable if they could produce things as slaves. And God looks at them and says, stop working for a day because I saved you. And I think the Deuteronomy passage tells us why we don't value Sabbath. First and foremost, I think like the Israelites and like us, we don't value Sabbath because too much we think we're valued by what we produce. And he speaks into that culture of meritocracy and he says, you are not valued by what you produce. I saved you. And when you stop working, you remember that. This weekend is one of my favorite things that our church does. There are sacred cows in churches. If you don't know what that is, it's something that you can't kill even if you wanted to because it's sacred, right? And uh, we only have a couple of those at Crossroads. One of those would be like the, the, the Christmas women's brunch. And I know that because I've asked questions around it. Um, but we're gonna keep, it's just a lot of glitter, guys. Um, but we're gonna keep it and it's good. When I came to CBC, there's probably only one or so in the student ministry and that was No Agenda Weekend, which is this weekend. It's where students are. And No Agenda Weekend is one of my favorite things because students pack up and they go to this campground that's really pretty and, and, and they have no, no agenda. Again, really good at titles at Crossroads. They have no agenda whatsoever. And, and we mean that. Remember when I first got the gig, the guy that was telling me about it was like, yeah, there's no agenda. I said, like, no agenda outside of. I said, no agenda. 
I said, so what do they have to show up to? They said, meals, just so we can make sure they're alive. And that's it, you know? I said, oh. And at first, I, I didn't really get it because, man, sometimes the church is the culprit of, of kind of implicitly telling you that you are what you produce as pastors. Like the more you do and the more lives change and the more decisions for Christ and baptisms and hands raised in the air for Jesus, that is why you get to keep your job. And it's so hard sometimes in a church world to remember that we're not valued by what we produce. So we'd go on these no agenda retreats. And every once in a while, my favorite part, my favorite part, I should say the students, but my favorite part was when I'd run into another church group in the same camp doing like a big midwinter rah-rah go team God retreat, which are awesome, by the way. This is not me knocking those. And they'd say, hey, what are you guys doing? I'd say, yeah, nothing. <laughs> and, and he'd go, yeah, but not I mean like after nothing. I was like, nothing. And he'd say, I don't understand. I'd say, yeah, it's a no agenda retreat for us. And he'd say, well, what does that mean? I said, we just don't have an agenda. We feel students need breaks because they have tests and a lot of pressure on students and we can follow God and grow with God in spaces that aren't big and, and light-filled shows and all that good stuff. Um, and, and so we just kind of come here and we don't, we don't do anything. We have no agenda. And, and every time, every time you saw their face change and you saw these other youth pastors be like, I'm sorry, what? And I'd say, yeah, it's pretty great. And he'd look at me and I could see in his eyes how jealous he was. And he'd say, oh, that's interesting, <laughs> you know? And I thought, man, I'm so sorry. And I'd look at my watch and I'd say, looks like you got somewhere to be, buddy. <laughs> I'd walk away, you know? It's so hard to remember in the middle of our culture that so often is defined by what we produce, that defines our value by what we've merited, by how much we've done. That what Sabbath does is it reminds us that our gospel is not built on that, but it's built on grace. What Sabbath does to 400 years of, of slavery that, that the Jews experienced or to us, it reminds us that God says you're valuable because of what Jesus did and not what you produce. And I fall into the trap of forgetting that often. One writer wrote a really good book called Emotional Healthy Spirituality. Put it like this. We've been called out of a world trying to prove its worth and value by what it does or possesses. We're deeply loved by God for who we are, not for what we do. So why don't we like Sabbath? Because <laughs> I think grace is hard for us. Because we're we deem ourselves valuable by what we accomplish. And so the rhythm, of fight, the rhythm of Sabbath fights against our culture of meritocracy and reminds us of a, of a gospel of grace. It reminds us that we don't have to do anything to earn the love of God. It reminds us that we are valued by and looked upon by God by what Jesus did and not how many times I prayed today or my church attendance record or how we grew this church or didn't grow this church. I'm reminded that Sabbath is there so that I see grace in a world that doesn't value grace. It's beautiful. And then two, I think what Sabbath does is ultimately challenges our culture of mediocrity, but meritocracy, but it challenges essentially our value of control. <laughs> so slaves in Egypt, they probably missed a lot of meals. One of my favorite stories about the slaves going on from here is they're in the wilderness and they're walking and you might, have, you might know this story. It's about this thing called manna, which is food that rained down from heaven and they're walking in the desert and they look at Moses and they say, God brought us out here to die. We have no food. And Moses said, God has done so much, he did not bring you here to die. And he said, look, God's going to rain down this special food for you. And you're going to gather only what you need for the day. Now imagine if you had been a slave, generational slave. Probably didn't know where your food is coming from next and maybe never well fed. I'm grabbing all my arms could carry, not all I could eat in a day. That's exactly what they did. And so they grabbed all this food and they got up in the morning and it was all spoiled. The stuff that had been left over. 
And they went to Moses and they said, it's all bad. And Moses said, God said to grab what you need for today. It's an exercise in trust. I think fundamentally what Sabbath does is it makes us realize that we maybe can't control all that we think we can. And it puts perspective on our relationship with God a little bit. But by resting, we acknowledge that God works and can work and will work when we sleep. And we think that if we rest, the world's not going to implode. <laughs> I have a hard time with this one. Like I said, I had a conversation with my wife on how much I could work on my honeymoon, you know? We believe we can control so much more than we actually can. It's tough to let go of. Let me tell you about my last night. I had a good night last night. We had some family in town. It's my dad's birthday this weekend. And so I got home and I got the sermon done early this week, um, which is really good. So I was pretty much done. And I got into bed and everything done by, I bed by like 10. That's really, I mean, usually it's 11, 1130, because there's this weird tension I have as a father of when you put your kid down, like you don't want that special time to end, but then you have like your time. And so when you go to bed, you realize I'm going to wake up and it's not going to be my time anymore, right? So it's this really weird tension of like, I, I need to go to bed, but man, right now, this is kind of special just to do what I want. And so I was like, I'm going to go to bed by 10. I'm going to get seven-ish hours of sleep and I'm going to wake up and bring my A game for God tomorrow. He's really going to do some stuff, you know? And I went to bed and, 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 and nothing happened. And I got this weighted blanket for Christmas that just like locks you into the bed and makes sure that you go to sleep. You know, it's like another human laying on you, which is a weird way to talk about it, but it's glorious. And I didn't go to sleep. And I drifted off and then I woke up a little bit and I was like, I don't know what time it is, but please tell me it's not an hour later. Have you done this before when you can't sleep? And you look at the clock and you're just hoping it says something with a five or a six. And I looked up and it was like one. I was like, oh no. So I tried to go back to bed after 15, 20 minutes. And then I woke up and it was two and then three, and then I just couldn't sleep all night long. And I thought, tomorrow's kind of a big day. Sundays are big days in church world. I have to bring my A game so God can bring his kind of conversation. And about four in the morning, I'm not kidding, I'm laying there. And I thought to myself, I'm teaching on rest tomorrow. <laughs> and I got the irony that I wasn't resting, but there was a bigger one there, which is part of the message is that Sabbath is all about trusting that God works <laughs> in spite of you, or even when you're not. It's letting go of control and saying, maybe I don't need to bring my A game for God to bring his, you know? This beautiful picture that God says, when we stop and rest, we're acknowledging God's position over us. When we stop and rest, we're acknowledging that there are things that we can't control and only God does. And that is freeing and beautiful, <laughs> you know? One writer said it like this, what happens when we stop working and controlling nature, when we don't operate machines or pick flowers or pluck fish from the sea. When we cease interfering in the world, we're acknowledging that it's God's world. Sometimes we don't stop and we hate rest because we're afraid to admit that our control isn't what we think it should be or what we want it to be. And it's in those moments where we close our eyes in rest that we realize that God works when we don't. That I don't have to. And that doesn't mean that we're lazy. That's not this conversation. It's just an acknowledgement of who God is in relationship to who we are. And it's freeing to say, I'm going to get up and do my best. And I'm going to trust that God is God. So the 
The rhythm of Sabbath fights against our culture of control and reminds us of God's position and our place in his created world. And it's so easy to forget. And so God says, you need to have a rhythm of rest because if you don't, let me tell you what happens. You're gonna work yourself to death and you're gonna be anxious about everything. If you don't have a rhythm of rest, you will forget the nature of grace that I've used to call you to myself. And you'll forget that I bring freedom when you realize that you don't have to control the world. I got that taken care of. The rhythm of rest ultimately is us being healthy and living into God's rhythm that he designed for the world. The question is, do we value it? And why don't we do it? My favorite part about God's rhythm and Sabbath, and let's end where we began in Genesis 2, is how he talks about it. So he says in Genesis 2, God blessed the seventh day and made it holy because, it ceased, because he ceased all work that he'd been doing in creation. And if you know the creation narrative there are three times God uses that word blessed in, creation, in Genesis 1 and the first three verses in Genesis 2 when the creation narrative stops. He starts creating and he says everything he created was good. And then he gets to animals for the first time and the fish and the birds. And he says, I created these birds and it is good. And then he called them blessed. And he said, be fruitful and multiply. Go and fill the earth. Get a couple verses down and he creates Adam and Eve. And he calls them blessed. And he said, be fruitful and multiply. Go and fill the earth. And what you see with that word blessed in the Hebrew, what you see in the language is that word means blessed. Because it means blessed, it means that they're literally life-giving things that the birds might grow and multiply and spread and give life throughout the earth that you and me might grow and multiply and give life throughout the earth. And then he comes to verse three and he says, and here's the Sabbath, the seventh day. And what does he do? He calls it blessed. So fundamentally, I love the idea of how God created the Sabbath because I think the rhythm of Sabbath is a blessing because it gives life. So if we establish that God's Sabbath is a rhythm that he created, that we don't do it because we like to think that we bring value in a meritocracy or that we can control more than we can control what rest does, it gives us confidence in our position in Jesus. It gives us freedom in our participation in the gospel. And it gives us life as we recognize that's how God designed the world to go because he called it blessed. The question at the end is the one at the beginning. Do we really value rest? Because God does. And so the conversations this week are <laughs> pretty much just going to be, do we value it? And what does that look like for us? Is it something that we do because we have time or do because we have intention? And next week, we're going to come back together and put some, really some, some details around this, talk about what it actually looks like in the day-to-day -day life. That is now, because we're not Jews, and we're not wandering through the desert, and we're not getting the Ten Commandments to us from Moses. But the fundamental principle remains. Rest is God's rhythm for how we designed this world to work, and in it, we find life. <laughs> so might we be a church that models rest to people? Because when we do that, we show that God works, even if we don't. Let me pray for us. Jesus, I'm, I'm, I'm thankful that you said that in you we find rest, that in you we find rhythm to our life, that in you we can trust that we're loved and known not by what we produce, but by what you did. God, I pray this morning as we have a conversation about rest that hopefully doesn't stop here, that it grows in its influence in our life, 
That whether we're good at it or like me not good at it, I pray that it's something that we make a priority because it will cause life to flourish as you designed it. Might we be a people of rest so that we might be a people pointing back to the goodness of God? So that other people might know that we need God. So go with us this week. May our joy for rest increase and may we see your good rhythms throughout your creation as we live into them so that people might see Jesus. And we pray these things in his name. Amen.